check the mic and make sure it sound right, boy. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their respective locker rooms and game plans. You see, the importance of preparation and attention to detail is crucial. Whether we're talking putting words on a keyboard or more importantly, maintaining focus and execution for the final week of the regular season. This is a toast to the A-Town presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andre Aldridge. Some very big minutes are ahead for our Atlanta Hawks. And a little later, our special guest for this episode will be a former Hawk who is the absolute embodiment of getting and staying prepared. More on all of that momentarily, but first, let's take care of a little business. Basketball season won't be around forever, so get in on all the action now with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. DraftKings is giving new players a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Claim your free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes while using code TBPN during sign-up. Playing daily fantasy basketball is simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Baseball fans, you may have missed out on season-long fantasy, so now's the time to get in on all the daily fantasy action where DraftKings has even more ways to make it rain. Download the DraftKings app now and use code TBPN during sign-up. This week, DraftKings is putting you in the action with a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. That's code TBPN, and you can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Now, as we continue with episode 15 of A Toast to the A-Town, we can seriously say that the most important thing heading into this season for our side, returning to the postseason after a three-year absence, is definitely in our grasp. Hootie hoo! All day. And the no excuses mantra still lives on. So we go to battle with the players we have available right now. The Hawks have played some of their best basketball at this time of the year. And really, that's the best we could have hoped for. So to prove that they're in the proper mindset for what's ahead, then the agenda this week is pretty simple. Finish the season no worse than sixth place in the East and maybe as high as fourth depending on what the New York Knicks are doing. And really, for our core players, Trey Young, John Collins, and Kevin Herter, who have never participated in a playoff game, the continued understanding that their games need to be elevated this week and looking ahead to what's going to happen after May 16th. Now, I'm not putting it all on them. I'm just hoping that their thought process is that it starts with us. Now, the reality is the Hawks, have had their most success or have been their most lethal because of the expected contributions from off-season additions, Boki Bogdanovich and Danilo Gallinari, as Bogdanovich has become more acclimated to his new city, new teammates, and new coaching staff. He has proven to be worth every dollar the Hawks spent in acquiring his services from Sacramento. And when Gallinari has been at his best, the least surprised person on the court has been Danilo Gallinari. So those five players have me excited about the possibilities of what's ahead. And if that's the case, what about the names I didn't mention? Clint Capella might be our most important player headed into the playoffs. And I expect him to do exactly what he's done all season. And that's show up and put in work. 
He's a big reason the Hawks are one of just five teams in the NBA scoring 14 or more second chance points per ball game. Now, we haven't seen a Hawks team do that since the 2005-06 season, and that team lost 56 games. Hitting the boards and getting to the free throw line, a couple of attributes that aren't bad to have this time of year. The Hawks averaged 24 free throws per game, fourth most in the league. And as I sit here right now, that's a number that we love. And they make their free throws. The 81% group effort is the fifth best mark in the NBA. Now, we're real sexy with the three ball, and that generates headlines and highlights. But the Hawks score 17.4% of their total points from the free throw line. And that's the highest number in the NBA. Now, I point these things out because, to me, a big part of being prepared is understanding what you do well, in addition to the challenges that will be presented by your opponent. That's another reason why I'm very excited to get some insight on what's ahead from someone that's measured up to challenges in the NBA for over a decade, on the playgrounds of the Northeast as a youngster, and in college out West, where former Atlanta Hawk, albeit briefly, Brevin Knight, became one of the best point guards to play in the Pac-10 while at Stanford. And you better believe that when you're a towering six feet and zero inches tall, you better have an executable plan if you're going to carve out the successful career that Brevin Knight had for over a decade in the NBA as a player and now as a TV analyst for the Grizzlies. Matter of fact, spend a little time on the importance of Memphis, not just to this episode of A Toast to the A-Town, but to the Hawks and their agenda right now. There was a player born in Memphis that I need to mention because I haven't so far on this episode. Slightly taller than Brevin Knight because he's six feet and one inch. He's not thought of when Memphis is mentioned because as a high school senior and junior, he was selected as the state of Georgia's Mr. Basketball. I'm talking about Lou Williams. And the surprise will be to zero human beings if he happens to single-handedly win the Hawks a playoff game or two. Lou's exploits in our state are legendary. He was going to attend the University of Georgia, but changed his mind and accepted the challenge of competing against grown-ass men instead of going to Athens. Following his senior season, he was the Naismith Prep Player of the Year. That's for the entire country. He was also first-team parade All-American, alongside Greg Oden, Josh McRoberts, Tyler Hansborough, and C.J. Miles. So he will forever be legend in Snellville, Georgia, from what he did at South Gwinnett High School. But just a reminder that thoughts, hopes, and visions can never come too early. One of Lou's first basketball heroes was another guy in Memphis who was all the six feet and zero inches tall. Despite his size, he carried then Memphis State on his back. And that guard was Elliot Perry. Socks to those who saw him play. And as Lou told me, from the time he was old enough to hold a basketball, Socks was his guy. Elliot Perry went on to play in the NBA for nine seasons after being a second-round pick of the Clippers, getting cut by them, and spending a couple of years in the Continental Basketball Association. And now, with his playing days long over, Elliot Perry is back in his hometown, still affiliated with the Grizzlies. I think one of the prevailing themes we've gotten from most of our guests here on the podcast 
is success in pro sports is never limited or halted by what's written down on paper or what's expected by others. And while we have living testimony to that from individuals, it definitely translates to teams and really to life itself. That goes from Spud Webb, who wasn't tall enough, to John Starks, who was bagging groceries at Safeway, or even Dale Murphy, who was supposed to be the Atlanta Braves catcher of the future. Overcoming obstacles, while not fun, really is the name of the game. So, as we continue here with episode 15 of A Toast to the A-Town, we are continuing with the theme of preparation, as I've been talking about earlier. Getting prepared, putting yourself or your team into its best position possible. And really, my invited guest this week has lived his life with that important trait or or fundamental uh, being the foundation of what he's all about. Now, in addition to playing in the NBA for 12 seasons, big deal there, in his post-playing days, he's embarked on a successful broadcasting career that is now approaching its 12th year, I believe, in Memphis with the Grizzlies. And since he's also a former Hawk, well, let me briefly touch on both teams before I bring him in here. Now, entering the final week of the regular season on Monday, our Hawks have four games remaining, two of them against Triple Double Russ and the Wizards. And I'll repeat myself. It is most important for our side to avoid the playing tournament at all means, which means finishing sixth or better. Now, out in the Western Conference, the Grizzlies, in all likelihood, will be in the playing tournament. And beginning Monday, They will play five games over the final week of the season, which includes a couple of back-to-backs. Man, that's that team's situation. So now let's also get a little bit personal, as we are very happy and honored to bring in our special guest, former Atlanta Hawk, celebrated Stanford Cardinal, and the pride of Livingston, New Jersey, Brevin Knight. Brevin Knight, thanks for joining us, man, and welcome to this edition of A Toast to the A-Town. Dre, good to be on with you, but I got to tell you this much. Uh-huh. People back in Jersey will kill me if they allowed you to say that I'm the pride of Livingston, New Jersey. I, they will go nuts. I am the pride of East Orange, New Jersey. I'm, Le- I'm sorry. Livingston, East- Livingston is only where I was born, and I hate that they asked you that question of birthplace because uh, I put that down 20 years ago, and I'm still uh-huh. as if I lived in Livingston. And people in East Orange would be like, yo. You're not from no doggone living. <laughs> and here's a, and, and the beauty of this podcast is that the host can be wrong and we do only accept the truth here. So uh, East Orange, I do indeed apologize. Uh, uh, Livingston is on the birth certificate. So we went with this government, unfortunately. OK, we go on there. Yeah, get but get East that Orange, government stuff. Yeah, East Orange <laughs> is definitely in the house. All right. So we're going to talk about Jersey. We're going to talk about the path. We're going to talk about preparations to get you to. Uh, the biggest stage of the NBA for a dozen years and how you're doing now. Let's touch on these teams first briefly. And again, you see a lot of the Hawks. You obviously you're there for every Grizzlies game, but uh, for our side that hasn't been in the postseason for three years, very young team, obviously everything revolves around Trey from the outside looking in. uh, What do you see as the Hawks strengths, Brevin? Uh, Of course you get, you you start, you can start and finish with, with, with Trey Young and what he has been able to do in his young career. Uh, he's excellent with the basketball. And I know that he gets so much talk about the range on his jump shots, but I think what makes him really good is his ability to also finish in the paint. And because he can make so many shots from the perimeter, that means defenses are closing out further on the floor. So that gives him more space 
to be able to use those handles that he has uh, and to be able to get into the paint and cause some havoc for opposing teams. But from there, I just think the the additions uh, will will help you guys as the season continues to go on. And that again to the playoffs, you bring in in, in veterans uh, that are able to play from the perimeter, but also guys that have been around long enough, not just in playing in the NBA, but also playing international basketball. And so that flavor has, has helped. And I, I just think that you guys have so many good wing players. Your big inside, of, of course, uh, with, with Collins uh, and Capella, those guys are, are, are good inside. But you have so many wing guys. And I always say, once you get into the playoffs, you need to have a plethora of wings because bigs that dominate games need wing players to still feed them the basketball. Wing players, you just need to get them the basketball. They make everything happen. And, and so uh, I think because you guys have uh, that many players at that wing position that can handle the ball, can create opportunities for themselves, and I think that just makes the game easier for everyone. So, and, and obviously you having been a veteran out there on the floor and understand and, and understand the importance of having veteran guys on the team. So, sure, John Collins is a big big part of everything that happens here and Trey and all the youth that we have. But Danilo Gallinari and, yes. and to a big way, what we've been seeing from Bogey Bogdanovich yeah. as the season has gone on, uh, is that worth its weight in gold for what you're telling us right now? Well, I think that's the reason why they were brought in because you got, you, you needed some veteran guys. I always say you want veteran guys that are not beyond their years in terms of vets, but also playing vets, not just someone that's going to sit on the bench and be a voice in your ear because after a while, especially for young players, that voice can start to get very dull because it starts to look like, dude, you're not even playing right now. Like we're the ones out there. I know maybe you did it back in the day, but I'm talking about where the game is today. And so it's always nice to have someone that's able to be on the floor with them to kind of uh, address certain issues that happen on the floor. And so I think with those two guys, uh, that's what it gives you. But it also gives you guys that are game changers. Gallinari shoots the ball out to the three-point line. He also can get into the mid-range when he puts smaller players on him to be able to work in there. And then Bogdanovich, I've always been a fan of his. From his When he was in Sacramento, I thought that he, he had – uh, so much swagger to the game. Uh, and, and because of that, can can create different things uh, for himself, but also for others. But I can tell you the one person that I really like on your guys' team is Kevin Herter. Uh, and and I, I think that he's going to be a, a phenomenal player uh, as the, as his career continues to go along. And I know he's, he was touted as, as a shooter, but seeing him be able to do more than just a guy to stand out and be a spot-up shooter. So, uh, you know, you, you go along with, with those vets and the, and the other young guys that you guys have around the wings. I think it's, it's you guys will be a, a tough out for anyone. Let's get with your Grizzlies, who you see each and every day. And I'll give you from the outside looking in, from my perspective, um, I would play, pay every dollar I had to watch John Morant play basketball. Now, uh, Trey is Trey is six one. Okay, I, I think they're counting hair on that, and this is my guy. I, guess, I don't know. And, and, and I know Ja is, is, is 6'3", but it isn't like he's huge. Um, there's an energy that he tends to bring from me looking at it. What's it like for you having played for 12 years and having called every one of his games and him being a year younger in the league than Trey? Well, I, 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 I got a, a, a plus in that I get paid to watch him. So oh, I don't even – it's, it's the other oh. way around. 
And, and so uh, uh, it, it, he has been amazing from day one, but I think the amazement has changed as time has gone on. When he first came into the league, it was all about the highlight plays. And that's because that is what we, we have come to know from him with the big time finishes. And he would try to create a highlight every night. Um, and, and it would be very easy for him to do because he's that skilled. Mm-hmm. Going into year two, think that there's more substance to his game than just the highlights. The highlights will still be there because he's that electric of a player. But I think the understanding of the game and what do you do to help your team win has changed with him in terms of the shots that you get on the floor. In his first year, everything was finished at the rim. Well, this year he is doing a better job with floaters, little pull-up jump shots around the free throw line. And here in the last couple of weeks, has gotten a lot more comfortable shooting the three ball uh, where he has been up around 40% over these over this last couple of weeks. So uh, I think the, the growth in his game is, is understanding when I take that opportunity or chance to create a play or that, that will ignite my team, but when do I just make solid basketball plays? And, and I think that's a lot of times it gets, lost, it gets lost in the type of player that he is because so many people only see the highlights. They don't mm-hmm. sit down and watch an entire game and watch the way he uses ball fakes, watch the way that he keeps a defender on a hip, lets another one come, perfect pocket pass. And so there are basics of the game as a point guard that he does at a high level, but wow. because he creates so many other highlight plays those mm-hmm. are the things that get most of the recognition well we obviously wish the the very best for both of our respective teams once yes. the second season starts so let's get in the way back machine now and uh with 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 with, with all kinds of respect for east orange because <laughs> we talk about preparation okay and so I, I bring up trey size you know i had spud webb on here earlier and as a six footer yourself what Spud told me is like my entire life, anytime I went to a gym, everybody else was bigger. Well, I don't look at myself as some small guy. I look at the, the, myself as my skill set and what do I need to do? So in your mind, did you ever look at your size coming up at, that you couldn't accomplish the things that were your dreams? No, I, I never. And similar to Spud, I don't see size. And I, this is kind of what I tell people is that we've been shorter all our lives so when i was younger i was shorter i got older i was still shorter (laughs) the difference for taller players are when you were younger you may have been taller than everyone but as things caught up later on people also caught up inside and now you had to make an adjustment in your game because you were no longer bigger than everybody now how do you continue to have success when everybody is that tall everybody is that athletic everybody Mm -hmm. can play we never had that problem because we were always one of the smallest ones on the court. So a lot of times people say, what was the transition from high school to college to the pros? And I say, not much, except that the skill level got better. But in terms of size, I was always the smallest person on the court. So there was no difference once I got to the NBA. And so uh, th- to, to prepare for that, it just was about confidence. Do you have confidence in what you do as a player? And can that go out and change games with what you do? And I think that with, with, with us and, and our, our uh, lack of height comes a greater sense of confidence in who we are and what we can get accomplished. And so I leaned heavy on knowing who I was as a player, knowing that I can go in 
and I can change the game despite who I may be playing against. And I think that's what that's what carried me throughout my career. Let's uh, uh, think a little bit about the bloodlines and about the East. All right. So your dad played at Seton Hall. Yeah. That was a coach, assistant coach at Seton Hall. Brevin Knight, when he was kicking butt in high school, went to Seton Hall prep. Now, I went to a Pac-10 party school. I'm not the brightest bulb, but I'm going to tell you this. In my mind, the only place that Brevin Knight is going to be playing college basketball is going to be at Seton Hall. That doesn't happen. He ends up at Stanford, uh, plays exceptionally all four years, leads the league and steals his first year there, does all kinds. So my question is, did you – Look at going to Seton Hall when you were growing up as that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be the point guard for Seton Hall. And why weren't you at Seton Hall? Well, first off, I, I, I never thought that I would go to college at Seton Hall because I grew up at Seton Hall University. My mom is 50 years in working at Seton Hall University Ooh. still to this point. So we, my entire, our entire life has been Seton Hall University. And so I went to camp. I, I, listen, I went to daycare. At Seton Hall University, I went to every basketball camp possible from a little kid until I got into high school at Seton Hall. I was a ball boy for Seton Hall University when my dad was coaching there. And I always tell people, the league is crazy because I get to the league and go to Cleveland. And my teammate is Mark Bryant, who went to Seton Hall, who I was his ball boy when he was playing at Seton Hall, being a pain in the ass. And now I got to be a pain in the ass as a point guard. So... Seton uh, Hall was was everything to us, and and I I I greatly thank it for what what the university has done for my family. But I wanted to get away, okay, um, and I wanted to have a different experience uh, mm-hmm. in life than just being in Essex County, because okay. I grew up in Essex County. See, uh, that's all we did was Essex County. My whole family was there. So uh, uh, it, when I when I had an opportunity uh, to start being recruited by Stanford, then it was it was. It wasn't like I wanted to go that far away from home, but mm-hmm. how can I pass on the opportunity to go to one of the best institutions in the world? And my idea for going there wasn't basketball related. It was more so future life related, the, mm-hmm. the connections that I can make uh, by going to Stanford. And so uh, basketball, just it all just kind of worked out that way that played well. And then I tell everybody, Jason Kidd, I played against him my freshman year. He the first, he's the first person in my life to ever tell me that I could be a pro. And when Jason Kidd, after the game, says to you that, hey, listen, if you work hard, you could be a pro, a light bulb went off. Mm-hmm. And that light bulb for the longest, the NBA was just a dream, not a goal. My goal was to go to college with basketball. Once he wow. told me that, the NBA then became a goal for me. And so my work ethic changed in that way. So uh, Seton Hall was, like I said, I, Seton Hall, I loved it. I, 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 I guess I thank everybody. At the time I was coming out, they had Danny Hurley had just signed there. Mm-hmm. And they had a point guard named Brian Caver, who was out of, I think, from Trenton, New Jersey, who was really good. And so to now take on a third point guard, P.J. Carlissimo, didn't need another one. And he took a lot of flack after the fact. But I tell people he wasn't taking flack during the situation because <laughs> the people, nobody thought that it, it would turn out to be this way. No matter what numbers I put up at the prep, nobody thought of me in that way as being a big-time uh-huh. basketball player. Then I go to Stanford and do what I did at Stanford, and then everybody's like, well, why you didn't recruit him to come to Seton Hall? But yeah. y'all weren't saying that. 
years uh, ago. So, uh, exactly. So it was, it was just, uh, I mean, it'll still, they'll always be family. You know, I'll always be family, but I wanted to do something different with my path. So when you're at Stanford, I'm working for Prime Sports, Prime Ticket out of Los Angeles. We cover the Pac-10. I'm doing sidelines there. And one of the analysts one year, you know, this is the great George Raveling. Yes. And I want you guys to know that um, for Coach Raveling, first of all, he spent all those years at Washington State where he got things done. Then he went to the Midwest, went to Iowa, and found out some things about the Midwest that they didn't care so much about Iowa State. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. He comes back to USC and, and works there. But I say all that. For me to be the sideline guy, working with him, I mean, he's like a basketball Gandhi. I mean, yes. before the internet, George Raveling was putting out reading lists of books that he would read, that he would pass out, give to reporters and other coaches, and, and just he was that kind of a great guy. And because everybody wanted to be around him, the day before games, when we would go to meetings with the coaches and different folks, I was almost like his guy Friday because he couldn't tell anybody no. So he's like, Dre, babe, here's the thing. I'm going to give you a little signal. We're going to have a hand signal, right? And that means it's time for you to come get me and tell them, it's, you know, it's time, it's time for me to go, right? Yes. So, yes. and I'm the type, I'm like, that's cool. I'm, I'm, fine with, I'm fine with being his guy Friday, whatever. <laughs> so that was part of the deal. And I want you to know that Stanford came to play UCLA. And to see that your freshman or sophomore year, and George Rowling is talking to you one-on-one. And in my mind, I'm like, Coach is spending a lot of time with this kid. I mean, there are a lot of players in the pack. Do you understand? Yes. Yes. He's talking to this kid for a long time. I gave George the signal. George just kind of looked me off. I'm not. I'm talking to this young man. And he spent a lot of time. How did that hit you, man, that so many people understood your game, at least on the West Coast, definitely? Well, first off, to, for George Raveling, because at that time he he was uh, – as. Uh, I don't want to use not as if it's the God that is up. Heaven, I understand. He was a basketball God. Yes, sir. In, in our terms for someone yes, that has had accomplished as much as he had accomplished. And so for him to take the time out first and foremost, to even acknowledge me, forget how long you talked to me, that you acknowledge who I am and believe that I was a, a, a player that was worthy of the guidance from him. Uh, it was, I was all ears. It was, I, I didn't, I didn't say much uh, mm. other than thank you, yes, sir, um, mm-hmm. and 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 took that and put that knowledge in the back of my brain as to say what's going to be a driving force for me to move forward. And, and I think that those those conversation, the conversation with him, what Jason Kidd has said from my assistant coaches, I think those just reinforced that I was going the right way, I was doing yes, the right things. And how do I just continue to enhance? what I was doing. And so I, I, I took it to heart. It was, mm-hmm. and to this day, he is still one of the more influential people for me that mm-hmm. pushed me over the edge from being just a kid that was trying to make connections to get a good right. job, to right. go back to Jersey and, and right. live in that way. But to be the guy that said, well, no, you can influence and do more with this basketball. You know, um, your college coach, Mike Montgomery, and again, I, I am who I am. So I just I, I I so I can only be honest, right? So on one of our trips, and I love your coach because I I'm interacting with him different than a player would or whatever. So in dealing with Coach Montgomery, for me, my second year going up there, I'm like, Coach, you kind of hit me as like the look more like the I don't know, the chemistry professor or this or what. And he just looks <laughs> at me, go, 
Well, Andre, you obviously haven't been on the Stanford campus because I definitely look like the basketball coach at Stanford University. And there's no question about that. So to me, Brevin, not only are you playing at Stanford, Stanford is a place where if you're there, you're going to class. Yes. And it's not about easy classes and it's not about athletes. You know, you get an easy. So what was the challenge like for you as a student there? Uh, it, I would say this much the first year because I came out coming out of high school. I was a, a phenomenal student, but I also had bad study habits. But I was very good at remembering things. I can sit in class, listen, and we take the test. I'm good to go. You go to Stanford, and the first thing that I learned was they don't take attendance in class. So I'm like, <laughs> no attendance. <laughs> then they tell you, you we will give tests, and you can take the test anywhere on campus. Every test is open book. Doesn't matter. It's open book. I'm like, y'all got to be kidding me with this. <laughs> Y'all been getting over on the rest of the country with all of this talk about how smart we are at this school, but shit, y'all made it very easy to be smart. So first semester, I'm thinking that, oh, I know the game. I got this down. I, got, I, I know this hustle. So I go in and immediately go on academic probation. First semester at Stanford. Had never been in any type of academic problem in my entire life. Never. And it was because I had to learn quickly that going to class, studying, allows you to then take the test. Because if you think that you're going to find the answers in a book, and that 50 to one hour, 15 minute, maybe time that you can take a test, you're not going to be able to finish a test. And so it, it, it quickly dawned on me that, oh, I can't play this game. Like I, I, I legitimately have to go to class, take notes. I have to really get into school because there is no, it's almost like, well, let me go there and let them not struggle with this. Well, you struggle with it and you drop the class and that puts you below the requirement. You're on probation. I'm like, wow. Nobody can, I, I play basketball. There's no, <laughs> we don't got no system with this. Thing. No, we ain't got no, the system is do the work. That's the system. And so uh, you, it, it, it taught me, number one, the thing about Stanford is the hardest part of Stanford, I tell everybody, is getting in. Once you get in, they have every resource to help you be successful while you're oh. there because they don't want everyone failing out. It just doesn't okay. make the school look good to have everyone fail out. So mm -hmm. you can use all of those resources. And I just it, it only took one semester for me to then buckle down from there. And then mm -hmm. uh, I, I finished I finished and graduated really in three and a half years and wow. three years in one semester uh, when I was done because. I, once I realized I wanted to play basketball, I promised my mom I would graduate. And okay. so I had to figure out how quickly can I get to this graduating while I'm still worrying about basketball. So school became, it came, became very important again for me by being there. And so you're doing that at Stanford in the classroom because you have to. Let's not forget that uh, as a Stanford Cardinal set this single season uh, record for assists, I believe 234 is a number, set the single season record for steals, I believe 83 uh, as a senior at Stanford, was a first team All-American. So preparing and working is just really part of what, you, what you're doing. You felt fully prepared, even though there's going to be challenges in the NBA, you felt ready when you uh, went to Cleveland as a first round draft choice. Yes, I felt ready to go to Stanford because I made preparation in high school to be in the position that Stanford could even recruit me. I didn't know while I was, and really this is a credit to my parents, didn't know exactly what this stand on top of me that I was getting all A's, 
and, and B pluses. That was all that was allowed in our house. And so I used to always be like, well, well for what? And my mom always would say, because, so you'll be ready for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. There's always a thing. So you'll be ready for the opportunity. And the opportunity presented itself. And if I was not the student that I was, if I didn't stay on that grind as they wanted me to, I never would have had the opportunity to even go to Stanford. And so mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. preparation that you're talking about yes. started from being a youngster, going nice. through high school. And then once I got to college, now the preparation became, well, how do you get yourself ready to play basketball at another level? Number one, physically you have to be ready, but mentally, what is it going to take for you to be the best at your position, but also being ready to be the best. So when you stepped into the NBA, there wasn't a big lag in terms of the transition. So we get you to the NBA. You're there in Cleveland. You, 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 you're playing, you're playing there in Cleveland and uh, you get four years in there. Then we'll get to a season where, I mean, you're four year, you're a vet, you're a seasoned pro. You, Traveled around the league, you've seen everything. You, you're in the East. You're already from the New York area, and and, and seen all that. So you see. Then you get a season as a member of the Atlanta Hawks, and I got to tell you, <laughs> I'm older than you. I worked in black radio when I got out of college. Southern California entertainment. I've seen it all in my mind, right? Until the first time I kind of go to Atlanta, and yeah. Atlanta is off the chain. So I got to ask you, as an NBA player, even though you've been in the league for a while, how wild was Atlanta? Super wild. It, it, it was, I got there and I was there for half a season. And the problem was our team wasn't very good. Mm. And so because, and we didn't practice a lot. Mm. So with Lon Kruger was the head coach and he had this thing where the vet guys, you come in, we work for a little while and then you guys can go work with some individual stuff or you can be done. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you consider me a vet at four years. Okay, cool. Well, I'm, I'm done. So I, I got an opportunity to enjoy the, the entire Atlanta lifestyle. And, and it mm-hmm. was, as you say, I'd been in the NBA for that long, but I had never been in Atlanta for that long. <laughs> and those are two different worlds. Yes. Being able to say, yes. literally, this is, this is seriously chocolate city, number one, to yes. be able to see that many African-Americans. Yes. And, and, and seeing them at every level. That was the mm-hmm. difference. Because I grew mm-hmm. up in a city in East Orange, 99% black. It wasn't a wealthy city. We had people, mm-hmm. we had hardworking blue collar people in my city. Mm-hmm. But all I saw was black people every day. Mm-hmm. So I, so that was, that was cool. Then I get to Atlanta and now I see it at a different level though. Because now I got, you got these wealthy African-Americans. You got people that are struggling. You got people in the middle. You got athletes, you got entertainers. You got business people. I mean, you it's a conglomerate of everybody that's African-American is right there and is centralized and had too much fun. I tell you what, my man, uh, Kenny Lofton, was a guest here several episodes ago. That's and even though he's baseball, Kenny told the exact same story. Ken, and I like, and I tell Kenny, look, I hung out in Cleveland a little bit. I went to the flats. He's like, yeah, that, that's, not, that's nothing yeah, when I came nothing. to the Braves. That, there's no comparison. So you know you know this is already coming. You always can tell by somebody's peers, you know, how, how it is. Peers that they play with, play, peers that grow up. And late in your career, you come up here, and, and we went to dinner, and I went to dinner with one of your friends you grew up with. And so this is your – this might as well be family. And he turns to me, he goes, Andre. You remember how hot Club 112 was? I was like, yeah, you better believe I was like, well, I walked into 112 and my man Brevin was at the table with his shirt off and a bottle of champagne and a big smile. And I was like, no. 
And he said, that's what I said. No. And I looked at Brevin and Brevin said, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Listen, Dre, we had that that's my that's my good boy Wardell. We had a standing table Ooh. at 112. Ooh. So where it would just be like when people would come in town, people were around, we're going to 112. Ooh. And one it was one of those nights. I felt like I was felt like I was. Like, I always, there's, there's, times, there's people that say, like, you're an NBA player. Like, you're in the NBA, but you don't do a lot of NBA stuff. Like, you right. you, you know, like, you don't really, you don't have an entourage. You don't really do a lot of stuff. But I got to Atlanta, and it was like, I'm, like, living the NBA life a little bit here. <laughs> so we go, and I'm in 112 with the wife beater on, with my chains on, and he is literally like, yo, this. And I don't think anybody else really would be like, yo, is that that's Brother Knight from Stanford? See, a lot of people don't. People don't right. equate Jersey right. Right. with me. Right. People equate West Coast Stanford right. with me. Yes. Because like I said, when I was coming up, nobody knew who I was coming out of mm -hmm. Jersey. No, but that wasn't. Mm -hmm. So they think that, yo, is this Stanford kid out here? Yo, why like this? And then that, then after you figure out, oh, this dude is from Jersey. That's why he got that in his blood. But <laughs> 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 well, listen, I tell you this, Dre. Uh huh. That. Three months. I must have been there, January for four months mm -hmm. that I that that I was there. Mm -hmm. It was four months that I knew that I could not stay there. <laughs> it, it was it was it was not it wasn't conducive for I my understand. lifestyle. Wasn't conducive for my marriage. I it was it, it, nothing. It was yep. it was time for me. I enjoy these months. Uh -huh. It's time for me to get my behind up. <laughs> now, one of the stops for your NBA career, uh, you end up in the great American city after the Vancouver Grizzlies relocate to Memphis. So I believe you're yeah. there the very first year. First. Yep. Um, the contacts and and your introduction to the city there, um, how surprised are you that you've been able to reconnect and make that your broadcast home the past dozen years? Uh, not surprised at all because when, when I came here to play, the team itself, we, we struggled, whatever, but the city embraced me from day one. And then there was so many, we stayed here in the summers for, we lived here for five years, even though I only played for the team for two years. Because the city had embraced us so much that we would come back every summer. I would come back here in the summer because we played. I realized how many basketball players were in the city of Memphis. And we played mm -hmm. all summer. Every day we would play. And I absolutely loved being here. I like the feel of, I feel like I am a big, I am a small town and a city person. Like I still want city. I still want to be able to have the the luxuries that you would get in a city. But mm -hmm. I want to be in one of the big cities. I, mm -hmm. I like the small town feel of the city. And so uh, it, it was it was fun, man. I, I I felt the love from these people, and now, sucks. I turn around and look now. This is I've been back here eleven. We lived here. This is now sixteen years that I that I've been living mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. Memphis, and so um, this is like a this is a second home for me. I, and to be able to come back was no brainer. Before I let you go, and. You are the embodiment of preparation, and you're also, I know, the embodiment of family, too. Got to ask you about another family member because uh, baby brother has to follow in your footsteps. And I say baby brother, so he's a couple inches taller, okay, but still yeah. baby brother. <laughs> but he's still in Brevin's footsteps to me as a basketball player. And here's another guy that doesn't go to Seton Hall. I don't know what his deal is, but he doesn't. But he ends up 
at Pittsburgh and yes. he balls the hell out at Pittsburgh. So Brandon Knight does that. And, and I bring that up not just because of the basketball that he played, but we're thinking in the very near future, Brandon has gone on a, a, a coaching journey that is going to have him as a head coach, we hope, very soon. But he's laying all the bricks for all that. How proud of you, of your brother, are you right now? Um, there is there's, there's a level of love that you always have for your for your siblings. No matter, it's just ingrained in you to to love mm-hmm. them. But I have been a fan of my brothers for a long time because I understand that it's number one. We're six years apart in age, so a lot of when we were growing up, I was an asshole to them. I just <laughs> I, I, I wasn't nice to them at all. My yeah. older brothers, look, they're just in, stop you. My older brothers, nine years older. Same thing, but he's my biggest hero, my best friend. That's why I'll throw right. that in. So same exactly. Thing. And so okay. and so being being young at that point, it was like, well, what am I gonna do with him? I'm 16, he's 10. I can't take him to the park. My mom's like, take him away. I'm not taking him with you. <laughs> like, he, and, and he loved to be around me so much that he would come into my room at night, and I would just and he would just sleep on the floor in my room just to be around me. Mm-hmm. And so to then watched him and watch his growth in basketball. But when, the one thing I always knew, I always knew he was going to be a coach. He was really? drawing up plays for not just basketball because he was also a good football player. He was drawing plays for football teams and his basketball teams that his coaches would then use when he was that young. And so his mind for the game was so much further, was so much advanced, more advanced uh, than so many people I, I have just – I can't be more proud of mm-hmm. the way that he played the game. And then he had a horrific lower mm-hmm. leg injury, broke his leg, had to get the rod that, that right. ended his career. But it didn't end his spirit and love for the game. And so now I think this is just finished his sixth year, fifth or sixth mm-hmm. year at Rutgers after 10 mm-hmm. years at Pittsburgh. And, mm-hmm. and you're right. I, I think there will be there will be a day here soon where mm-hmm. a call will come for him to be a, a head coach because he's a great communicator. He mm-hmm. loves the game. He's big on film, but he's really mm-hmm. good with young people. And so mm-hmm. I, I love him. I love him uh, um, more than anything, except for my, I got my kids now and with my wife, but, but uh, he is, uh, he, he makes me smile, man. I, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't ask for a, a better brother, a hardworking person uh, and somebody that, that I admire still mm-hmm. today. Man, that's great, man. And I know that we are mostly audio only here, but I can see you right now. And so I, I want folks to know there's a beautiful dog wandering around. So what is what is the dog? What's his name? And and, and what what kind of uh, he's wandered off into the back. But what is he? Well, I got we have two black labs um, mm-hmm. and the, the girl is Bella. The boy Bella. is Bronx. OK, Bella is a she's an absolute lover. And that's, so she's she it's, you say her name. So she's right here next mm-hmm. to my leg. My boy, he does what he wants to do. Yeah, so he, he just bounced. Yeah, he's like, listen, man, we ain't going for a walk. I thought we came down here because we were about to go outside for a walk. You ain't taking me for a walk. I'm going back upstairs to my yeah, bed. So, uh, yeah, go over there and chill. They're, they're good dogs, man. I love them. They, uh, they, keep, us, they keep us happy. All right. Well, uh, uh, Brevin Knight again. 
12 solid years in the NBA and and uh, uh, just as great behind the microphone. Everybody in Memphis already knows that, man. Nothing but continued success to you and the entire family. We appreciate you spending some time here with me on the Toast to the A-Town. Uh, 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 tell your partner, Pete, man, that, you know, I, I took care of you. I stole you for a little while, but I got to do what I got to <laughs> do sometimes. But it's all good, man. Thanks a lot, man. And, and Brevin, we will talk to you soon. Dre, you know, you know, you and I go way back, brother. Yes, sir. And, and, and whenever you need me, you know my number. I'm yes, always sir. around for you. Appreciate that, man. Thank you very much, Brevin. And again, folks, uh, once again, I have a guest who um, there's really nothing else I need to add to what we just heard from him. Uh, uh, Brevin Knight, again, a solid, solid individual. You could tell that from the conversation you had there. Uh, and since the Grizzlies are in the other conference, hey, we hope they are, are wrecking shop as long as he's calling games, right? So uh, hopefully they take care of their business in the playoffs and hopefully our Hawks are able to take care of business uh, this week. Make sure they avoid the play-in tournament and uh, get ready for, uh, who knows, possible date with the Knicks and, and maybe to make up, some, make, up for some, uh, make up for some sweeping action that happened during the regular season. Thanks again, folks, for joining us for this episode of A Toast to the A-Town presented by the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm on Andre Aldridge, and I will see you next time.